Good morning. Good morning. It is just human episode number 242. And I'm talking in chat about all the racetracks that I want to visit. <laughs> oh, and there's so much F1 news. We should, we need, we need to do like a F1 news show because there's so much stuff happening in formula one and I don't have anybody to vent about it, vent to about it. Lewis Hamilton, the cabal's favorite driver is joining Ferrari. It's been like 48 hours since that news broke and I still don't believe it. I'm so sad about it. I think this might be the last year that I can wear Ferrari gear. Of which I have like one item, <laughs> but, and it's not even formula one, but still, oh my gosh, I can't believe Lewis Hamilton is going to Ferrari. This is, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And poor Carlos signs. He had such a great year. Hopefully Charles, Charles Leclerc can demolish Lewis Hamilton. He probably won't demolish him, but hopefully he can beat him. And that would be great for Charles. And then Lewis can just bow out and retire in red, which it's so weird. I can't, I can't imagine it. I don't think I'm going to be able to believe it until I actually see like a year from now, Lewis wearing Ferrari clothes. So anyway, I'll try to get off that subject, but I want to tell you right now, I'm a little bit down. I'm a little bit down today. I'm a little bit under the weather because of this absolutely terrible Formula One news. And it falls on the heel of Andretti being denied an entry into Formula One, which is one of the worst things that Formula One has ever done. I'm really upset. I'm really upset about this. Uh, so we should talk about something less upsetting, like the swamp <laughs> and corruption in DC. <laughs> um, today on the show, uh, aside from the occasional bemoaning about Formula One, which I make no promises that I won't engage in again. Uh, we're going to talk about some stuff that uh, I did have scheduled to talk about on Wednesday night on Devolution Power Hour. And it, we didn't get to it because we're a bunch of bozos and started arguing with each other for an hour. <laughs> um, but I have some stuff lined up that I didn't get to on Wednesday's show on my show and then on DPH. And that would be the America First Legal uh, FOIA request for that Obama-era document. Uh and the Presidential Information Technology Committee, PITC, and how that factors into Trump's docs case. Uh, we're also going to look at a, pardon me, a letter from uh, Trump's attorneys that was sent over a year ago. Um, or no, maybe it was about just about a year ago. Um, it was definitely spring of last year that details why Trump is free and clear um, of this docs case. Um. And then I think we're going to talk about, um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of debating a couple things. We'll see if we get there. Uh, planning for a two hour show today, but we're going to start off with a little bit of clickbait. There's been, there's been a few, a few clickbait stories this week and I want to, I want to grab them and I don't want to disrespect anybody, but I just, it bothers me. 
Clickbait bothers me, and you guys know that. So we're going to address some of it. Before we do, I want to show you how you can follow me and how you can get the show in other places and how you can support the show. I am posting more and more and more on X because X allows me to thread, and I really enjoy threading. Uh, threading is a way for me to put lots of information out at one time in one post, you know, but it also is a way like that I commit it to memory. Um, so I like doing it and I get something out of it and a few people like my threads. So if you're interested in following me on X, that's where I'm doing most of my threading. Actually, I, pretty much all of it. I'm also active on Telegram and True Social. True Social, I try to thread over there occasionally. I tried again this week. It doesn't go that well because True Social doesn't function very well when it comes to comments and and replies stacking. And I really wish they would fix that because uh, it would really help. But I do post on True Social and Telegram quite a bit. If you would like to support the show, you can go to ko-fi.com and buy me a coffee. You can go to use the affiliate link right here. Go to bensonhoneyfarms.com and any honey over here or soap or candy or barbecue sauce or honey sticks or whatever that you buy over here. They'll kick a few dollars my way. And also I get a notification when you guys do that. They have some discounts here too. Um, whenever you guys like use that link to, uh, make a purchase, I get a discount of it. And a lot of people, a lot of you are doing it. So I really appreciate that. Um, and I'm sure you, you like it too, because you get some awesome honey. Their honey is the best. Same thing with bootleg products. Click the affiliate link. You go over here, get some chili, which I plan I'm probably going to make chili tonight. I'm thinking, um, again, <laughs> um, their salsa and their seasonings, their rubs, they're just amazing. Everything from here is delicious. And look at, take a look at them. They don't have, it's all fresh and natural ingredients, no artificial preservatives. Um, they list all the ingredients on their stuff. And I mean, it's just, it's just good stuff. So I, I love it. Their chili is a bit sweet. And I personally like that in the chili. Um, their salsas are really good. And the seasonings, I, I mean, I use their seasonings all the time. That's my go-to now. Same deal over here. You make a purchase through the affiliate link. They'll kick a few dollars my way. Manly cans also. Valentine's Day is coming up. Hopefully you have a manly man in your life. And it would be a good thing for you to get him a manly can, right? So I'm a big fan of the Dapper Man can, obviously. Uh, I am quite dapper as you, I'm sure you guys have noticed. And uh, they have the Dapper Man can and snack can, protein can, Caniversary, the Smoke can, hot can, also features bootleg products. And that's pretty dang cool. And you can customize the cans too. They have links for you to do that. So same deal with these guys. If you uh, make a purchase of a Manly can and you use my affiliate link to do it, they'll kick a few dollars my way. Then I have my own merch if you're interested. The coffee cups are spectacular. They're excellent coffee cups, and I'm a coffee snob, so I would know. And then there's Buy Me a Coffee with Venmo if you just want to use Venmo, because some people prefer that rather than going through these. But I will tell you that Ko-Fi.com doesn't take any money from you when you make a purchase uh, through there, or you make a support donation through there. They don't take any, any bit of it. So, all right, enough, enough with that. And thank you guys for all the support. Really appreciate it. That's what makes this show happen. 
I don't get paid by any advertisers to do anything. It's all it's all about what you guys do. Whether you subscribe on Substack, which is where I do the podcast version of the show, it's free. Um, so go to Substack if you want a podcast version of the show. Um, I do want to mention over here on Rumble, I have been adding to the playlist. So if you're interested in getting clips of the show, you can go to the clips playlist and I've been adding them right here. So, um, occasionally people ask me, you know, like, why do you keep saying Trump is Batman? Well, you can find that right here. You can find a short version of my explanation of Trump being Batman right here. You can find the full version right here where I go through a bunch of documents. Not all the documents I have on it, but some choice documents that I have on it. Um, but yeah, if you're looking for clips, that's the place to go. Also, occasionally I get asked about my John Ram John Benet Ramsey episode. It's right here in its own playlist. I've been kind of kicking around the idea of re-recording it. Now that it's been a little over a year. Um, I've been thinking about re-recording that episode and seeing seeing how just like not looking at it ahead of time though. Like just doing that thread all over again and trying to be open-minded and see see what I think about it then. And just a fresh, fresh version of it. I don't know. There's too much, there's so much news going on with other things I'm tracking. And so let's get to that. Let's go over here. I see you guys rants. Let me address those real quick. Just a moment. Um, yeah, let's grab, let's do that right here. Okay. So a couple rants on rumble. Thank you guys very much. Patriotess. Thank you for understanding what I was saying on DPH. Um, a a lot of people have reached out to me and told me they, they understood what I was trying to say or what I did say, um, perhaps not as carefully and eloquently as I needed to at the moment. Uh, but a lot of people have reached out to me to let me know they understood and agreed. Um, Buster Lou, thank you very much. I see you have the same sentiment. Yeah. A lot of people The the response I've gotten from the community has been overwhelmingly positive and supportive. So, and we're cool. We're cool. Everything's cool. But I do have very strong feelings on the subject matter. And um, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Hopefully we don't need to talk about that again. Uh, but if we do, I'm, my, my opinion hasn't changed. All right. So there's a few... Um, Let's which clickbait? Let's start with this clickbait. No, no, no. I say that because it's a docs case. I can segue into the docs case. All right, let's let's talk about the latest clickbait that's been going around the past 24, 48 hours. There's been there's been three clickbait things going around as concerns Trump's cases. Okay. The first one is that uh, pretty much beginning yesterday, there's been a ton of clickbait going around that the D.C. case with Judge Chutkin. Trump's J6 election interference case uh, was rescheduled and it's been, or no, it's been taken off the court schedule. And there's all sorts of clickbait headlines going around right now. There's tons of accounts posting breaking emoji, 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 Trump's case removed from DC court schedule. And, you know, like it's just, it's everywhere. Right. When I saw, when I saw that stuff going around, I was like, uh, Yeah course it's been removed 
because we've known since late December, early January, that the March 4th date of Trump's DC case wasn't going to hold. We've known that this entire time. We've known that for a month now because there's, it's going through the appeals process and there's going to be appeals of the, whatever the decision is and there, and the, all the filings in it have been suspended. Judge Chukin said this case has been removed from my authority. It's not in my, my wheel, my box anymore. I can't do anything with it right now. We read last week, uh, I think it was last week, an order from her where she said, look, if you guys want to make any substantive filings in this case, you got to get permission from the judge first. Um, so I saw these going, stories going around. And the first thing I did, the first thing I did was I actually went and looked at the docket. I was like, well, is there anything going? I haven't gotten, I don't have an email notification that something has happened with this case. Is anything going on with the docket? Okay, I'm going to go look at the docket, see if there's something new here. Nope. Nope, nothing new. There's that order from her that I just mentioned that we read on this show. Okay, well, nothing's going on here. There's no filing saying anything. So I looked at the stories that they were going around about it being removed from the court schedule, and they're like saying Jack Smith took it down. It's like, that's not how courts work. I mean, I'm no lawyer and I'm no judge, but... The prosecutor doesn't control the court's schedule. They don't make the calendar. So shipwreck crew, who is a former federal prosecutor has this excellent post about it that just decimates this clickbait news better than I ever could. So here it is. Everyone posting theories about why the U S V Trump DC case was removed from the March 3rd calendar which I noted here yesterday, are making clowns of yourself. Your guesses are idiotic. Tomorrow was the day, so today, Friday, was the day that juror questionnaires were supposed to be returned to the court by prospective jurors given to the parties. And given to the parties. Was a questionnaire ever prepared? No. The case has been stayed. It's been stayed for over a month, right? So no questionnaires will be received. There were procedures in place to review the questionnaires over the next several days, and each side was to make requests as to which jurors to excuse without the need for them to come to court for jury selection. None of that is happening. Also, the logistics of bringing in several hundred prospective jurors is daunting. The D.C. District Court is not that big. Doing that requires a lot of pre-planning by court staff. Has any of that been done? Probably not. Again, the case has been stayed. For a month now. So none of this, none of this jury stuff is happening. They're not arguing about what's on the questionnaire. They're not sending out the jury questionnaires. They're not receiving jury questionnaires. Were juror summonses ever sent summonses ever sent out to several hundred prospective jurors? Maybe, maybe not. These are the nuts and bolts and details of how a jury trial happens. You don't just have hundreds of people spontaneously walk through the door on the first day of trial as prospective jurors. If none of it has taken place, then it has been a given for weeks that the trial would not start as scheduled on 3-4, March 4th. But there was the possibility that the March 4th, that March 4th could have been used as the date to get the jury jury questionnaire sent out at, at least. But because Trump is not obligated 
to participate at all in trial prep activities while the case is pending on appeal, the questionnaire has never been done. And you guys, like, we've been following this case, every filing. All that stuff is put off. Have we gone over any of that? Like, have we, have we gone over any document about jury questionnaires or proposed jury questions or any of that? We haven't. One of the first questions is, quote, do you have any plans that would make it impossible for you to be a juror from March 3rd to May 3rd? Well, you can't send that out until you know what the start date will be. So all you supposedly in the know exters just stop posting nonsensical conspiracy theories about why the court, not Jack Smith, removed the trial from the March 4th calendar. And like I said, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an attorney. I'm not a judge. I'm not a court clerk. None of those things. But my understanding is that the prosecutor doesn't make the schedule. They don't fill in the calendar for the court. The judge and the court clerk and the staff do. And it's been known for a month that that Trump, that that, that trial date was not going to hold. So this is all just as a consequence of these things, the date has been removed from the calendar because it's not happening. But that doesn't stop a bunch of clickbait people from producing clickbait content. So that is my reply. A lot of people are tagging me like, Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. Jack Smith removed the trial date from the calendar. Okay. Uh, Kit Caddy, good morning. So what is Anna Paulina implying? Here, let me go to Anna Paulina. Ah, come on. What is, I don't even, I don't think I even follow her. What is Anna Paulina? I can probably just search Jack Smith DC date and it'll come up. I don't want that. Oh, this is going to, X is going to get me in trouble. Uh, We're about to we're about to have an Andrew Tate type show. Um, where's where's her tweet? Yeah, Anna Paulina. Oh, it's a yeah, it's but like Paul Paul. Yeah, that's it. There we go. There we go. I do follow her. Okay. Okay. So what is she on about? Well, this is what she's on about. She sent a letter to Jack Smith's office requesting certain documents the day before the jury questionnaire thing was supposed to go out, okay? So that's what... She's doing a victory lap because she sent this letter requesting documents. I was going to see where the actual letter is. Um, Because I saw it go by and I read it the other day. Anyway, she sent this letter. It's she has a snippet of it right here where she wants these documents from Jack Smith's office. And then the next day, the calendar removed the the court removed the uh the 
the March date in the calendar. Honestly, guys, honestly, guys, I think she purposefully timed her letter to occur right before that date got removed from the calendar. Like, how easy would that be? That's what I think. Not disparaging her, but I'm just saying she timed her letter for the date that the jury questionnaires were due to be returned, suspecting that or knowing that that wasn't happening. Well, we all knew that wasn't happening, but suspecting or knowing that the calendar would then automatically or as a consequence change, be adjusted, which would provide her the opportunity to do exactly this. So that's, that's my take on that. Another piece of fake news. Well, here, Music and Fiction says that specific trial was the case. I believe that Jack Smith wanted to have started 3-4 to interfere with Super Tuesday. Totally agree. And that's not feasible. So we could say the deep state has failed again. Yes, absolutely. Um, music and Fiction. You know, in this clickbait thing, this clickbait scenario, there is reason to do a victory lap in that this trial isn't happening on that day. It's not, it's, it's been, their timeline has been pushed back, um, which is good for Trump. So there is victory in it, but we did this victory lap, guys, like a month ago. We did the victory lap on the DC trial date being as good as uh, removed, deleted um, a month ago, whenever this got appealed to the, this got accepted at the DC Court of Appeals and they heard arguments on what was it, January 11th. They still haven't issued an opinion on it. And we all know that as soon as they issue an opinion, either Trump or Jack Smith is going to uh, immediately appeal it to SCOTUS. So that's right, Kit Caddy. So now it's news again. It's a re it's a replay. It's a, uh, it's news all over again because a bunch of people who weren't paying attention just now found out. That's the same thing that's going on in another case. But first, I want to address the um, the Trump case in New York in front of Judge Ingeron. And good for all those people just now finding out. Good for them, you know? Good for them. I'm glad they're paying attention, but... It's still clickbait. So over here in Ingron's case, he's due to give his like ruling, right? And in this case, which I admit, I haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to the New York AG, Trump Ingron, Trump org case. I do think it's important, but I only have so much bandwidth and I can only watch so many cases. And this one is very lengthy. It, there's a lot of documents in it. It's a complicated case. And I just decided it wasn't, not, I don't want to say it wasn't worth the time sink, but I have, I can't do everything. So I decided this one I was going to leave out. And one of the reasons I decided to set it aside, which uh, one both made me, It makes me more interested in it, but at the same time, it and it all, but it also gives me a lot of comfort in it to where I'm like, I'm not going to, I don't need to follow that day to day to understand it. I think I know what's going on. So one of the things I saw in this case that made me really comfy is that the, they've appointed an independent monitor and I've covered this on the show. Um, 
they appointed an independent monitor of Trump's orgs to oversee the winding down of some of them and the sale off of others and what all this stuff. Okay. And the person they appointed as the independent monitor is none other than the honorable Barbara S. Jones. And we covered that on this show. And as soon as I learned that, I said, okay, everything's fine. Everything is fine with this case. Whatever wrongs are going in this case are going on, whatever injustices are being applied to Trump and his organization and his businesses and Eric. And I'm, I'm not worried because Barbara S. Jones is the independent monitor overseeing everything. So it's all going to be okay. And if you guys don't know who Barbara S. Jones is, you can look up my videos on her on this channel in the clips section. Um, but Barbara S. Jones, just to give you a quick one, Barbara S. Jones has been working in New York for decades and worked with Rudy Giuliani and the Trump org and um, Trump and his brother when they were busting the mafia together back in the 80s and the early 90s. She's fully aware of Trump being an FBI asset. She's fully aware of the Trump org being an FBI asset and that many of Trump's businesses are set up as sting operations. That's why Trump's businesses, like you have this list of, you know, like the left would say, Trump's launched over 500 businesses and hundreds of them have failed. Well, a bunch of them were meant to fail. They weren't meant to be successful businesses. They were sting operations. Um, so yeah, they failed and he doesn't care that they failed because he would, didn't set them up to be big business success successes. He set them up to catch bad guys. Barbara S. Jones has handled a number of those cases. Her name has come up over and over and over and over and over again in so many consequential uh, happenings related to Trump. She was the special master over um, Rudy Giuliani's case and the Rudy Giuliani raid, special master over Michael Cohen raid, special master over a bunch of other things. She keeps popping up in uh, consequential places with oversight and the ability to influence um, the way things play out. And the, the, the click click uh clickbait media will always mention she's a clinton appointee and you know they they characterize her in this very negative light but the fact is that barbara jones barbara s jones in all likelihood is read in uh to what trump and trump org are all about and has been since the 80s and so as soon as i saw her name appear in this case over to the trump org i was like oh okay it's all good and we know for a fact um we've gone over it several times in the show. We know for a fact from the Seth Hetna case where he sued the FBI to uh, get access to information about the Trump organ's role in a sting operation against a certain Russian agent that the Trump org was still functioning as an FBI asset as recently as 2021. And there's no reason to believe it isn't still operating as such. So, What's going on in this case, the reason there's a delay in Ingram's decision, all of that is to get to this point. The reason there's a delay in this decision, um, you can read this whole 12-page document. It's out there on the uh, New York docket for this thing, which the New York's website for their, their courts, it sucks. Uh, but I'll just read the introduction and the conclusion here. 
Barbara S. Jones writes to Judge Engron. On November 14, 2022, I was appointed by the court in the above-referenced matter as an independent monitor. On November 17th, there's that number, 2022, the court supplemented that order and described certain duties and responsibilities of the monitor. Pursuant to the supplemental order of appointment, I am required to, quote, report the status of the monitorship to the court and the parties monthly or as the monitor finds necessary or as the court shall order. The court has requested a report of the work my team has done over the past 14 months. So Judge Ingeron, in leading up to his judgment in the case, he's asked for a report from Barbara S. Jones. Including an assessment of financial disclosures made by the Trump Organization during the course of the monitorship. While certain observations discussed below have been addressed in my prior reports, this report also provides a review and an overall assessment of the defendant's compliance with the requirements of the monitorship. Introduction. To date, my team has reviewed more than 3,000 documents relating to the Trump Organization's disclosure of financial information to third parties. These include, one, financial disclosures to third parties, including lenders and insurers. Two, agreements related to loans and other transactions. Three, documents related to the Trump Organization structure and entity dissolutions. Four, bank statements provided by the Trump Trump Organization. Five, documents provided to tax authorities. Six, documents related to transactions. Seven, license agreements. And eight, select documents exchanged between the parties or submitted during the course of the trial. More specifically, my team has reviewed over 422 documents related to financial disclosures submitted to third parties, 179 documents related to information provided to taxing authorities, 384 documents relating to loan agreements and other transactions, 192 documents related to the dissolution of certain entities, and over 200 bank statements. While the Trump Organization did not enter into any material loans, make significant purchases of real real property, or submit valuations of its properties to lenders during the course of the monitorship, it submitted numerous financial statements, financial reports, and related information to third parties. As discussed more fully below, and here's, here's the, the real thing here, here's the nugget, I have identified certain deficiencies in the financial information that I have reviewed, including disclosures that are either incomplete, present results inconsistently, and or contain errors. In addition, while defendants have been cooperative, information required to be submitted to me to the terms of the monitorship order and review protocols has at time been lacking in completeness and timeliness. I have previously reviewed these items with the Trump Organization, which has often agreed to modify the disclosures or implement processes that improve accuracy, transparency, and the timeliness of their disclosures. Now that goes into details but we will skip those and go to the conclusion. She says, conclusion, following the work my team has completed over the last 14 months, the above sets forth my finding and observations in accordance with my duties under the monitorship. It is important to note that the Trump organization acknowledged the disclosure issues described after I brought them to its attention and has been open to recommendations to improve accuracy and transparency. Indeed, during the monitorship, The Trump Organization has implemented changes to disclosures or processes, several of which are discussed above. In addition, with respect to the instances where required disclosures were not provided to the monitor, 
The Trump Organization submitted the information for review when it was made aware of the omissions. Absent steps to address the items above, my observations suggest misstatements and errors may continue to occur, which could result in incorrect or inaccurate reporting of financial information to third parties. The parties continue to cooperate with me under the requirements of the orders. Should you have any questions, feel free to contact me. Sincerely, Barbara S. Jones. So there's going to be a lot of clickbait headlines, and there already are, saying that Barbara S. Jones has stepped in and she's a Clinton appointee and she's making things worse and she's trying to find more crimes of the Trump administration or Trump org or whatever. No, she's praising the, the cooperation of the Trump organ here. She's saying that there's some missing information, some erroneous information, some incomplete information, and I'm, I'm working with the Trump organization to solve that, and they are working with me. That's all that's going on. But there's going to be a lot of clickbait about it. So, next. Doc's case. This is another clickbait story. But it's also, there's clickbait about this, but there's, this is also a good update on the, on the, on the case. So back on January 11th of this year, Judge Cannon scheduled an ex parte hearing with special counsel Smith regarding SIPA section four filings. If you guys have been watching my show for a while, then you're well aware of what SIPA is. And you may remember what SIPA section four says, but if not, I'll remind you. Ex parte simply means a hearing without the opposing party, so a private hearing between the judge and one of the parties in the case. So in this instance, it's between Judge Cannon and Special Counsel Smith. SIPA Section 4 is a provision which permits the government to, with the judge's permission, delete or redact certain classified information from discovery. So... The prosecutor can go, Jack Smith in this case, goes to the judge, ex parte, between him and the judge, and says, this, this classified discovery, the defendant shouldn't have it. Here are my reasons why I think the defendant shouldn't have it. Or they should get it, but we have to delete this information from it, or we have to redact this information from it. Here are my reasons why. And if the judge agrees, finds his argument compelling, then the judge can give him permission. Yep. The de- and which means the defendant will still get discovery but they won't get these bits of discovery because the classification, whatever reasons, it could be because it's classified and it has no bearing on the case. Um, It's classified. And if the defendant learned of it, it could lead to consequences that um, endanger national security or whatever. Um, It helps to take this kind of thing out of the context of president Trump and his specific case and think about, Think about a drug trafficker, a narcotics trafficker, and there being classified information within discovery about other people that are under investigation or the means by which um, uh, law enforcement is learning about drug trafficking activity, their surveillance methods, whatever. And they might go in and make a SIPA section for filing saying, we want to we give discovery here because we have to, but... This stuff right here that's classified, it reveals to the defendant way too much information about our ability to gather uh, intel on the narcotics trafficking activities that him and his group were engaged in, right? And then the judge might agree to that. So naturally, 
such a hearing would need to be conducted ex parte because obviously Trump's and because, you know, it's between them. They're trying to prevent the other side from learning it. But Trump's counsel opposes this effort all the same. And they've made filings to that effect explaining why they do need to have discovery on this SIPA Section 4 stuff. Now, the hearing did occur. It occurred on uh, January 31st. And you probably saw a bunch of clickbait going around saying, Judge Cannon and Jack Smith hold secret meeting without Trump and all sorts of similar posts. And it made it sound like Judge Cannon and Special Counsel Smith were having some illicit or scandalous private meeting about this case. And tons of clickbait went around about that. But there wasn't anything. It's been scheduled since January 11th. And it's a proceeding that happens in tons of cases uh, that involve classified information. Not all, but tons of them, you see SIPA 4 come up. So the hearing occurred on uh, on January 31st. The docket says it lasted three hours. The attorneys that Special Counsel Smith put before Judge Cannon to argue his case were Jay Bratt, David Harbach, Julie Edelstein, and J.P. Cooney. Now, I noticed this right here the day before the day before this uh hearing this attorney jp cooney was added to the party in this case he's been in the dc case he's been a prosecutor with the special counsel's office the whole time um and he was part of the investigation into trump but he wasn't a party to the doc's case until just now and so i went and looked up this article and we don't have time to go through the whole thing on the show today. Uh, but this article right here, if you go to my X account, you'll see my thread here and you can get this link. But JP Cooney is, uh, this is a fan, this is, I know it's the Washington Post, but this is a fantastic, very, very detailed, long article about all the people investigating Trump. And JP Cooney, it details in here, is a, a pit bull of a prosecutor is my understanding. Um, at many points, this, this article details that at many points in the investigation, JP Cooney was pushing for um, investigative steps that Jack Smith and others, including Jay Bratt were pushing back against. He was very, 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 very aggressive in his wanting to investigate Trump. And I think this is my personal opinion. I could be wrong. I think that, him being added to this case in order to go and make this argument in SIPA section four, it could just be because he's very, very good and experienced at SIPA section four arguments. Could be that, but I don't think so. I think it's because Jack Smith is really at a disadvantage here against judge Cannon because judge Cannon has a history in this case. As I wrote right here, judge Cannon has erred on the side of giving Trump access and giving the public access at every opportunity or near enough. And she's made that statement a couple times in the process of this case that look, because this case is so important, because it involves the former president of the United States, 
The American people have a right to know, and I am going to give them access to as much as I possibly can at every moment that it makes sense to do so. So I think Smith added Cooney to his case because he knows it will be very tough to get Judge Cannon to go along with these deletions and redactions. And uh, truck driver over here, truck driver's perspective, asked me to clarify a bit. And I said, yeah, I'm saying Smith brought in Cooney. A pit bull of a prosecutor, as I understand to be, because he needs to field his strongest players on the field for this particular contest. And so I think it's a good thing. Like in a way, this is like kind of, this is like the bicameral thing where it's like, oh crap, they brought out somebody like that. Oh no. But it's like, oh wait, that means they know they're really up against it. They have to field their best. They got to play their best Pokemon cards, right? <laughs> So now we wait. Now we got now we just have to wait for what Judge Cannon rules. And hopefully, I mean in all likelihood it'll be granted in part and denied in part. And uh but hopefully we get some discovery and we get to take a look at it. Something else on the Doc's case. Do you guys remember back a week ago? I've got this huge thread. We went over this huge discovery filing in Trump's case. And um, it was great. It was, it was dense. It was great. But uh, remember these filings here where Trump is asking for communications about their dis the FBI's discussions about where they would search in Mar-a-Lago and where they wouldn't. Trump's team asked for all correspondence and communications concerning the search in Mar-a-Lago. And I told you guys, I think they specifically did not search the Mar-a-Lago skiff. Because right here in, this, in these filings, it says, we know from communications produced through discovery that redacted it is inexplicable that members of the FBI, let, al uh, let alone the office, would have no communications concerning the decision not to search an area of the president's residence. Right here. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. They specifically did not search a certain area of Mar-a-Lago? during a search that was supposedly for classified documents that were at risk of spilling out, you know, and all of this stuff. So like, why would the FBI not search an area? And we have this new article from ABC news. And it says the special counsel questioned witnesses about two rooms. The FBI didn't search inside Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. There's two rooms. Special counsel Jack Smith's team has questioned several witnesses about a closet and a so-called hidden room inside former President Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago that the FBI didn't check while searching the estate in August 2022. Sources familiar with the matter told ABC News. As described to ABC News, the line of questioning in several interviews ahead of Trump's indictment last year on classified document charges suggest that, along 
Um, long after the FBI seized dozens of boxes and more than 100 documents marked classified from Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, Smith's team was trying to determine if there might still be more classified documents there. According to sources, some investigators involved in the case came to later believe that the closet, which was locked on the day of the search, should have been opened and checked. They didn't unlock the closet? What? Like, what? If the FBI searches my house, do you think that they're going to let a locked closet stop them? <laughs> As investigators would later learn, Trump allegedly had the closet's lock changed while his attorney was in the Mar-a-Lago basement searching for classified documents in a storage room that he was told would have all such documents. Trump's alleged efforts to conceal classified documents from both the FBI and his attorney are a key part of Smith's indictment against Trump in Florida. Jordan Strauss, a former federal prosecutor and former national security official in the DOJ, called the FBI's alleged failure to search a closet uh, a bit astonishing. Quote, you're searching a former president's house. You should get it right the first time, Strauss <laughs> told ABC News. In addition to the closet, the FBI also didn't search what authorities have called a hidden room connected to Trump's bedroom. Don't tell E. Jean Carroll about that. She will come up with the most insane and racy theories about what Trump's hidden room is. Smith's investigators were later told that in the days right after the search, some of Trump's employees heard that the FBI had missed at least one room at Mar-a-Lago. According to a senior FBI official, agents focused on areas they believed might have government documents. Quote, based on information gathered through the course of the investigation, areas were identified and searched pursuant to the search warrant. <laughs> SBNZ spins in chat says it's a room full of Diet Coke. <laughs> oh my gosh. I hope that's true. I Oh, I hope that's true. That would be so good. That would be the greatest thing ever. If it's just Diet Coke and autographs from Celine Dion and like random stuff like that. If y'all don't know that there was a, there's like an autographed album or something of Celine Dion that the FBI took from Trump's Mar-a-Lago and Trump had his lawyers actually make a filing with the, with the special master in the doc's case saying that Trump had an immediate need for the return of his, his autographed Celine Dion merchandise. All right, within a few months of the FBI search, federal prosecutors in the DOJ pushed Trump's legal team to ensure that no classified documents remained at any of Trump's properties. But it's unclear if those prosecutors or any Trump lawyers even knew about the unexamined spaces then. It's also unclear if Trump ever kept any classified documents in either of those spaces or whether Smith's team ever considered seeking another warrant to search Mar-a-Lago again. And they're questioning of witnesses 
Smith's team seemed to focus more on the missed spaces in the three months before the first indictment in the case. All right. So obviously you guys know, and you guys have already said it in chat, my take on this is they didn't search the Batcave. Which is the Mar-a-Lago skiff. They didn't. It's tr Yeah, that's right. It's Trump's Batcave. They didn't search the Batcave. I mean... <laughs> And the reason, the reason I, I, they would do that, um, the, the reason they would do that is, is this right here. My suspicion is that they, special counsel Smith and, and the raid team wanted to leave out any mention of any secure facilities at Mar-a-Lago from the materials they presented to the grand jury uh, to get the indictment and they wanted to leave it out of the indictment. They didn't want any mention at, at all of any sort of secure rooms or facilities there because that undermines the, undermines the whole perception that Mar-a-Lago is as they, what they portrayed it to be is a club with all these, get all these events and 150 parties a year and thousands of people come and go through the property and it's completely insecure and not suitable for classified information to be stored there. That's the that's the characterization they're making of Mar-a-Lago in their filings in the indictment. Uh, that's what the media is portraying Mar-a-Lago as. Of course, we know that to not be true. Like it is that the club area of it is that, but Mar-a-Lago is also a highly secure place. With Trump's had his own private security for decades. Uh, now he has Secret Service and has had for ten years now, almost going on ten years, eight years, I guess. And um, he had a skiff there. He probably guys, one thing that gets kind of mixed up about skiffs and secure work environments, SWEs. So if you have the money, you can get a skiff installed in your home right now. There are lots of companies who will, who will build you a secure work environment in your home or your office or even a skiff. Now, in order to get one that's certified by what is the DISA, I think it is, the agency for out of DOD that handles certification of skiffs to prove that they're capable of handling U.S. government top secret secure compartmented information like that level of classified materials, um, it has to be certified appropriately and accredited to be that, right? But that doesn't mean it's not a skiff if you don't have that accreditation. You like tons of like I'm sure Elon Musk has a dozen secure work environments or skiffs because he's dealing with cutting edge technology and he doesn't want that technology stolen. A lot of businesses that deal in um very advanced technology and proprietary stuff, um, they have skiffs or secure work environments in order to protect any of that stuff being leaked through corporate espionage. Right. And it would make sense that Trump would have something like that. Consider he's a multi-billionaire. He probably has secure facilities before he was president. He had secure secure rooms, facilities, whatever, in his residences, in Trump Tower, Bedminster, so that he could um, have these types of discussions with people and planning um, with less risk of it, of corporate espionage affecting that. Uh, and then also because he's an asset, he would have them. So 
it makes all the sense in the world that he would have a secure facility at Mar-a-Lago. We know that at one time he absolutely did, and it was certified. We also know that it got an upgrade post-presidency, a half-million-dollar upgrade or $400,000 upgrade by the DISA. Pretty sure that's the right acronym. So I think they just wanted to leave it out because of perception. They didn't want the grand jurors to perceive that it was secure, and they didn't want the indictment to portray it as secure. Um, and so Trump and team are asking for these discussions about why they the FBI skipped certain rooms. And it'll be very, very interesting to learn why they decide to do that. It undermines the entire case. I'm not saying it gets it thrown out, but it just, it undermines the entire premise of the case that Trump had illegally retained classified information at his residence. Then the FBI says, we suspected that we have probable cause to believe he has these things. They go there and they don't search a locked closet, and they don't search a room connected to Trump's bedroom, yet they search Trump's bedroom and his office. I think they did it on purpose. And that filing indicates that. This ABC News article indicates that. It's very interesting. Okay. Um we got this, we got this, we got this, we got this. Let me move that to help me with my organization. Okay, let's get to the America First League. Oh, one more thing. Real quick. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Mar-a-Lago was built as the Southern White House. That's right. So, um... You guys may remember, and I know this is a little bit of old news, but um, the the House clerk had to come out and say that this is this is by law. They have to notify the House that the DOJ has sent a subpoena for documents from a representative. Um, so they made this announcement on January 29th. The clerk did, and everybody started speculating about what it could be about. Who are they subpoenaing? Who's the target of that? And we pretty quickly learned that it had to do with misuse of house funds and that it concerned, um, let's see right here, or misuse of uh, funds. House clerk read a message from House Sergeant at Arms that notified the House of a grand jury subpoena issued by the DOJ. Just the News has confirmed with a congressional source that the subpoena pertains to a DOJ investigation of a House Democrat's misuse of federal funds allocated for personal security purposes. And then the next day, I think it was, we learn that it's Rep. Cori Bush. And she goes out and reads a statement. Um, Rep. Cori Bush confirmed that the DOJ is investigating her campaign spending on security services stemming from payments to a former security guard she married last year. Sounds a lot like Fulton County, doesn't it? Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade scandal. Sounds very similar to that type of corruption. 
And I wonder if we're about to get a, you know, it also reminds me of George Santos. Um, and I'm going to admit, I'm kind of, <laughs> this is both a terrible pick and a very, very appropriate pick. It's like, this is, this is like awful, awful image, but also a hundred percent appropriate <laughs> for the story. Um, when I saw this news, there's a part of me that thought about all of those people that got mad at me for cheering on the removal of George Santos and came to me and said, Oh, 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 but he hasn't been convicted yet. Oh, he's innocent until proven guilty. You can't trust the health ethics panel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder how many of those same people feel the same way about this or did their take change because she has a D next to her name instead of an R. Just saying. Just saying. Okay, now let's go to the Obama era memo. I promised you guys I would cover this on Devilish and Power on Wednesday, and we just didn't get to it. But I will say, and I know that I know that some people they don't like it when John and BB and I argue. Um, but we did have a good show. We really did have a good show. And if you missed it, you missed out on some good discussion between us because we really did have some great discussions on the topics. We just didn't get to very many topics. <laughs> we planned out like 10 and we got to two. And speaking of things we've talked about in Devolution Power Hour, America First Legal. Last week we talked about them and I mentioned all the FOIA cases that they're involved in and I've been looking them up and there's quite a lot. Um, one of the ones they got is this right here, a secret Obama memo. The Presidential Information Technology Committee, PITC, regarding control of presidential records and changed everything uh, in the DOJ's politicized prosecution of Trump or could change everything. In October 2014, Russian hackers breached the executive office of the president's network. In response, President Obama created via executive action, PITC. PITC includes representatives of the DOD and DHS, among others. First, PITC creates a presumption that the president controls all information he receives. That's very important. The PITC memo established the president's exclusive control over information resources and systems provided to the president. The memo created the presumption that information contained on information systems and resources was, quote, EOP information, Executive Office of the President information. Because the memo relied upon the Federal Records Act, definition of information systems as resources organized for the use and disposition of information, the memo gives the President exclusive control over information he receives. This is relevant to what a president may reasonably believe about information given to him while in office. 
Second, and related, if information stored on the PITC network formed the basis for special counsel Smith's in prosecution of former Tr- of President Trump, that evidence should have been disclosed to the former president and may be relevant to his liability. Special counsel Smith's indictment against former President Trump claims, quote, Trump was not authorized to possess or retain classified documents. But Obama's PITC memo may have created a reasonable belief in President Trump that he, in fact, had such authority. Additionally, if the records Trump allegedly destroyed are still preserved within the EOP or the U.S. Department of Defense as part of a PITC-created information systems, then other claims in the indictment may be baseless. I'm going to pause right here. I think this is ex- I think this is it. We had all those reports about Trump tearing up documents and throwing them in the toilet, pieces of paper in the trash, pieces of paper in the toilet. Maggie Haberman ran that silly article. Um, I think this undoes that angle of the case. Because if what Trump has is a copy of it, he's just like printed out some information. And then there's also copies of it with the USDOD. Then him tearing it up and tossing it into the, the, the toilet doesn't matter. He didn't destroy government property, destroy classified information, whatever. Um, he destroyed his copy of it. But it still, it still exists. Uh, all right. The explosive findings are consistent with the America First Legal's white paper contending that the President of the United States has absolute authority over presidential papers. Neither Congress nor federal courts may lawfully abrogate or limit this authority. The American people deserve to know the truth behind the secretive memo. We filed a a Freedom of Information Act request with the the Department of... No, excuse me. With the Defense Information Agency, which is part of the Department of Defense. More on this revelation from Examiner and Kaylin here. I want to say that this was largely duplicative of what I just said. Maybe not. Okay. Hey, America First Legal. Skip right here. Between reports of two separate hackings. Okay. So here's the storyline to how this was created. Between reports of two separate hackings believed to be tied to Russian government in late 2014 and spring 2015. This was Cozy Bear, I think. Obama created, via executive action, a White House Information Technology Director and an Executive Committee for Presidential Information Technology. Obama's March 2015 PITC memorandum established the president's exclusive control, that's in quotes, over information resources provided to the president, the vice president, and the EOP. Moreover, it made clear that any records sent to EOP, again, EOP is Executive Office of the President, um, to their systems or records stemming from those systems are controlled by the President. Quote, because of President Obama's executive action, President Trump could reasonably have concluded that all information provided to him in his office was within his exclusive control. In June, Trump pleaded not guilty, blah, blah, blah. In late July, superseding indictment. Smith's indictment against Trump states the former president, quote, was not authorized to possess or retain those classified documents 
that were found by federal authorities in Mar-a-Lago. But Obama's PITC memo may have created a reasonable belief with Trump. Additionally, if the records Trump allegedly destroyed are still preserved within the EOP or the DOD as part of the PITC created information, we read that. According to a five-page filing in a 2018 FOIA lawsuit known as Cause of Action Institute versus U.S. Department of Army, an official handling the group's request conceded that the software the executive office of the president uses is located within the Department of Defense, which under the PITC memo would be subject to presidential control. AFL presumes that the DOD servers did store information, but filed its FOIA request to learn what information the Pentagon stored, as well as if the information stored on the PITC network formed the basis for Smith's prosecution of Trump. If it did, quote, that evidence should have been disclosed to the former president. Daniel Epstein, a lawyer for AFL, said he believes the request is a matter to be looked into by both Smith and Robert Herr, the special counsel overseeing President Joe Biden's mishandling of classified documents during his vice presidential tenure. So prepare yourselves, because it could be that what is good for the goose is good for the gander, and what gets Trump exonerated in the Docs case also gets Biden exonerated in his special counsel investigation by Robert Herr. Because this PITC memo covers both the president and the vice president. Quote, and then we needed to determine, does PITC affect the intent of any of the targets of the investigation in the case of Trump, a post-indictment criminal defendant? Trump's legal team in December filed a motion saying Smith should be forced to share with classified inf- share which classified information he wishes to redact, et cetera, et cetera. We read that on the show. You guys are caught up on all that. Now, there was something else I was going to look at with this. No, it wasn't there. Here, hold on. Give me just a moment, guys. Well, actually, I can just look it up. So we are going to look at my favorite document of all time for just a moment. For just a moment, we're going to go back and revisit the Durham report. Okay, and we are going to go to page 275, I believe it is. I think it's 275. You give this a minute to go there. It's lagging a bit. Yeah, Road Dog, the whatever classified information he retained from his Senate days is different, but stuff from his vice president days, that's all, that's all that I'm referring to as far as what I, my comment on Robert Hur. I think it's 275. 
Oh yeah, and here it's not going to be 275. Uh, okay, here we go, here we go. Scroll just a bit. Okay. A lot of things I could pull out from here. But you guys remember Joffe. In reading this America First legal document and its talk about the EOP, I was reminded that Joffe's company, um, either, I think it was Ultra DNS, handled DNS servers and traffic for the EOP. And that's one of the ways that it is, is believed that the Spygate people spied on President Trump in the first days of his presidency. And from the Durham report, it says documents and other records that the office, meaning Durham's office, gathered from private entities reflect that during or around the same time period as the aforementioned letters from Senator Reid and afterwards, Joffe was continuing to use Tech Company One resources and personnel, so that would be Newstar, uh, to discuss research issues relating to Trump and Russia, including Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations. For example, emails and other evidence reflect that in early 2017 and afterwards, Joffe tasked Tech Company One employee one to run searches over Tech Company One's DNS traffic to gather additional information concerning Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations. In particular, according to Tech Company One employee one, at or around the time of Trump's inauguration, Tech Company One employee one had been running queries for Joffe's for Joffe relating to Trump including queries concerning Alpha Bank, Yodafone, and the Executive Office of the President. Joffe and Tech Company One employee one intended to continue running certain of these queries after Trump's inauguration. Soon after the inauguration, however, Tech Company One employee one and Joffe noticed that Tech Company One's access to the EOP's DNS traffic had ceased. Tech Company One and, and employee one and Joffe never learned why Tech Company One no longer had access to the EOP's DNS data. But it was clear that Tech Company Five, the contractor that handled EOP, the executive office of the president's DNS traffic, and the company for which Tech Company One maintained the EOP's DNS servers, was no longer handling EOP's data. This reminded me of that because... We're talking about EOP and Obama creating, where'd it go? This, Obama creating the PITC to handle what? EOP information. Information systems and resources being regarded as EOP information. And it was in response to hacks in 2014 and 2015. Well, Joffe's companies were handling that stuff back then, too. And one of the things I, one of the ideas, notions I kind of flirt with is that Joffe was spying on President Obama for Hillary Clinton. 
and that there was conflict between Clinton and Obama. Uh, well, we know there was, but I think I think it goes pretty deep. I think that conflict goes much deeper than we realize. And I think Joffe was the Clinton's mole through his access through these systems um, into Ob the Obama admin, into the Obama White House and EOP. And I kind of, I'm wondering if one of the things that was going on here with this memo was not Obama guarding against it, but if there was, if there was something, if maybe it was part of that, I don't know. I, I haven't fully fleshed it out, but this is talking about the EOP, the information going through the EOP becomes the president's own information that he has exclusive control over. And I'm wondering if this, this is part of the way that they were like, we got to get around the email server thing. So it's like, like, Hey, instead of us having, a, this is just me speculating. Instead, like if I'm putting myself in Hillary Clinton's shoes and she's fallen under investigation for the, uh, her email server, maybe there's some other scandal going on too, where they put information into the EOP because they wanted it to be found by Joffe and then get back to Clinton. Like, The the he, Joffe, Joffe's role in Spygate, and then his companies being able to access DNS servers and DNS traffic in the executive office of the president, which is huge. It's not just the Oval Office; it's all of the stuff that falls under the EOP. Um, it it really changes the perspective of just like who was controlling who, who was influencing who, who had insights into what um, and knowledge of what. Now, the other thing about this, which I absolutely love um, is Joffe and his company, not knowing why their DNS traffic had suddenly ceased. And this is really fun because you guys remember Trump saying that we found gold in the walls. Remember that? I believe it's, is it the Vanity Fair article? It's the main one. How Trump's team spent nearly $2 million redecorating the White House. Trump, a real estate guy, loves a renovation. As he told Time, oh wait, I bet it's, I think it's Time Magazine is the main article. Uh, this might be it. Yes, I think this is it. Yes. <laughs> Damn, I love those guys. All right. Each president leaves his mark on the building, and Trump has wasted little time making his. The modern art favored by Obama family is mostly gone. 
replaced with classic oils, including portraits of Trump's favorite predecessors like Andrew Jackson and Teddy Roosevelt. Gold curtains have replaced the maroon ones in the Oval Office, and military service flags stands have been added around the room, topped by battle ribbons and held in place by heavy braces that Trump praises to visitors. But few rooms have changed so much, so fast as his dining room, where he often eats his lunch amid stacks of newspapers and briefing sheets. A few weeks back, the president ordered a gutting of the room. Quote, We found gold behind the walls, which I always knew. Renovations are grand, he says. Boasting that contractors from the General Services Administration resurfaced the walls and redid the molding in two days. Quote, remember how hard they worked? They wanted to make me happy. Trump says he used his own money to pay for the enormous crystal chandelier that now hangs from the ceiling. Quote, I made a contribution to the White House, he jokes. But the thing he wants to show is the on the opposite wall above the fireplace, a new 60-plus inch flat screen television that he has queued up with clips of the day's Senate hearing on Russia. Since at least as far back as Richard Nixon, presidents have kept televisions in this room, usually small ones, no larger than a bread box, tucked away on a sideboard shelf. That's not Trump's way, though. So, here we go. We found gold behind the walls. I believe is a reference to this. Joffe and his swampy tech company suddenly and without notice losing access to the DNS traffic of the executive office of the president. Which means what, guys? It means that it says soon after the inauguration, it means that Trump and team came into office and knew already about the spying that Joffe and his swampy tech company were doing. They didn't find it out later. They knew it before Trump was sworn in, which speaks to the larger sting operation going on. Now, the other theory is what Music and Fiction just mentioned. And the popular theory at the time, um, when Trump made the comment, the popular theory was that Trump was talking about microphones and that there were gold-plated microphones and bugs hidden in the executive office of the, office of the president where the IC and maybe others were spying on the EOP. That might also be true, or that might actually be what he was referring to. It could be either or, it could be both. But you know how, um, you ever seen those videos where they use just your Wi-Fi router to spy on your house? And like they show how um, Intel agencies can manipulate a Wi-Fi router to where it can basically do a 3D scan of your house based off the resistance of the signal in the rooms. And it can track people's movements in the house and you don't need to install any special equipment. You can use the electronics that are already in the house. Well, if you can do that, couldn't you use those same types of techniques to 
pick up audio um, and to do all sorts of other spycraft. So I'm not, in other words, and I say that because I'm not even sure you need actual microphones anymore. I'm not sure you do, but it could be, it could be, uh, it could be Trump knew about that, but regardless, Joffe and them got found out before Trump was sworn in. And as soon as Trump was sworn in, he got cut off. Okay. One other thing on this. What time is it? Oh, sweet. Good. All right. Something else on this uh, memo here on America First Legal. So this guy, Jason Cloninger, linked me. Um, when I shared this, he linked me something, um, or he linked them, this right here. Um, and it says, NARA failed to do its job in DOJ bias, blatantly clear in Biden illegal possession of classified documents versus Trump's. Almost all of Trump's records at Mar-a-Lago are printouts of digital records, which... I 100% believe, which means there's records within DOD and DOJ and the PITC and Trump destroying them doesn't matter. And since Trump declassified them, it doesn't matter that he retained any copies of them. Uh, music prod, prod gal, I do not agree with that statement at all. Not at all. Okay. Remember Tim Parlatori. This letter right here, this is from April 26, 2023. Um, go back right here. The, the attorneys on here, um, James Trusty, Lindsey Halligan, we haven't seen their names come up that proletary. We haven't seen their names come up very much lately. Uh, we've seen more of Alina Haba. Of course, she always gets the cameras. She's gorgeous, right? And um, she's also like bomb basket and a, and a, you know, just a flamethrower. So it's great. And then we get, we heard from Corcoran because he's a swamp creature and tried to trap Christina Bob, who gets a lot of attention as well. So you have these other attorneys that are um, getting more attention in the media and some of these guys you're not hearing about as much. And to me, that's usually a sign that these guys are doing the work. Um, and then the others are out there on purpose. Trump loves doing that. He has like his cast of crew that get all the camera attention, right? And the media focuses on things they say and uh, they react to them. And then he has this other team that's doing the more consequential work. And then suddenly those guys appear. Same thing with America first legal. Um, you don't hear much about America first legal. And then suddenly boom, they're on the scene with tons of FOIA docs that they've been gathering for months that are all filed with Trump's motion. So this right here is, uh, says to chairman, Mike Turner of the house permanent select and committee on intelligence. At the Capitol, it says, Dear Chairman Turner, we're going to read this because it's really good. And you're going to recognize some arguments in it that I have made on the show and um, that you've heard others make. 
Chairman Turner, we represent Trump and are writing to provide information regarding DOJ's probe in the post-presidency handling of classified documents. Now, this is from April 26, 2023. We understand that DOJ is making the documents marked classified available for your view. Review. And this letter provides the committee with information that we suspect DOJ has not disclosed. It has become abundantly clear through this investigation that the institutional practice and procedures within the White House for handling of classified materials drastically differ from the long-standing standard operating procedures employed by various agencies of the intelligence community as well as the U.S. military. As demonstrated by the discovery of documents with classification markings in the homes of President Trump, President Biden, and Vice President Pence, Deficient document handling and storage procedures are not limited to any individual administration or political party. A legislative solution by Congress is required to prevent the DOJ from continuing to conduct ham-handed criminal investigations of matters that are inherently not criminal. Thu Malungu. Good morning. And you are absolutely correct. Trump knew about Joffe, which means he knew about Russia, Russia, Russia before it even got to Hillary. So what if the good guys hijacked Russia, Russia, Russia and used it to catch the CIA? And I would add to that other swamp creatures and deep state actors within the government, within government agencies, within media. It's a trap and it's always been a trap and it's always been our trap not theirs. Factual background. Back to this. When President Trump left office, there was little time to prepare for the outgoing transition from the presidency. Unlike his three predecessors, each of whom had over four years to prepare for their departure upon completion of their second term, President Trump had a much shorter time to wind up his administration. White House staffers in the General Service Administration, where our good plant, uh, what's her name, Hutchinson, that's where she worked. She helped pack the boxes for Mar-a-Lago. Employees quickly packed everything into boxes and shipped them to Florida. This was a stark change from the standard preparations made by GSA and National Archives and Records Administration for prior administrations. As NARA acknowledged in a press statement it issued on October 11th, 2022, quote, the National Archives and Records Administration, in accordance with the Presidential Records Act, assumed physical and legal custody of the presidential records from the administrations of Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, and Ronald Reagan when those presidents left office. NARA securely moved these records to temporary facilities that NARA leased from the General Services Administration near the locations of the future presidential libraries that former presidents built for NARA. All such temporary facilities met strict archival and security standards and have been managed and staffed exclusively by NARA employees. NARA, unfortunately, has become overtly political and declined to provide archival assistance to President Trump's transition team. Interestingly, in its press statement, NARA cites every recent president after Jimmy Carter as having received the same assistance with, quote, archival and security standards. Yet, 
President Carter, the last president before President Trump to not receive archival assistance, archival assistance, found documents with classification markings in his home, which he returned to NARA, though apparently without accompanying DOJ criminal probe. Whether NARA's departure from routine packout procedures for President Trump was intentional or a product of the compressed timeline, it did not take custody of the documents, and this has made necessary the transfer of boxes of documents to President Trump's heavily secured home at Mar-a-Lago. To be clear, had NARA offered President Trump the same assistance that it had provided all previous presidents, he would have accepted the offer and there would have been no reason to transfer the documents to Mar-a-Lago. Well, well, well. Well, well, well. What do you know? Are we going to find out, guys, that NARA and this whole thing between the White House and DOJ and NARA and Special Counsel Smith and the IC, are we going to find out that NARA tried to set President Trump up by not offering him assistance and thereby causing the GSA to pack up the boxes and thereby causing the boxes to go to Mar-a-Lago, thereby creating the circumstances where a crime could be created once the Biden administration was convinced they needed to reclassify the crossfire hurricane materials and other materials. Oh, 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 that was a bad mistake. It's a bad mistake by Nara. Bad mistake. Trump, Trump has them see over and over again, agencies and people keep on trying to set president Trump up. And they just don't realize that he's always the bait. You can't set him up. <laughs> he's always the bait. You're just going to trap yourself. NARA's variance from its standard procedures ignited a dispute with President Trump when it discovered dun, 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 that boxes were being transferred to Florida. In January 2022, in an attempt to cooperate with NARA, President Trump asked his staff to retrieve 15 boxes that had been moved to Mar-a-Lago so he could see what was in them before they were sent to NARA in Washington, D.C. However, due to other demands on his time, President Trump subsequently directed his staff to ship the boxes to NARA without any review by him or his staff. Upon receiving the boxes, NARA opened them, reviewed their contents, and found that some documents with classification markings had been mixed in with assorted other personal presidential records. Tim Parlatori and Jim Trusty, two of the undersigned counsel for President Trump, reviewed all 15 boxes at NARA earlier this year. These are the guys I think Trump trusts. I mean, I think there's a number of his attorneys he does tr he, he trust. Uh, I put these two guys in that category. I think there's a number of his attorneys he doesn't trust, and he sets them up, like Corcoran. The boxes contain all manner of documents from the White House, are loosely grouped by date, and include newspapers, magazines, notes, letters, and daily schedules. Following its review of the materials, NARA inserted placeholder pages where it had removed documents with classification markings. 
That allowed Parlatori and Trusty to discern what the documents were, as well as what other materials in the boxes were in the proximity of the marked documents when the White House staff packed them. The vast majority of the placeholder inserts refer to briefings for phone calls with foreign leaders that were located near the schedule for those calls. This organization of materials, i.e. schedule of calls for the day, insert pages for briefing sheet to prepare for the call, newspapers from the same day, which makes me think of the Iran stuff that we Trump is on audio talking about, indicates that the White House staff simply swept all documents from the president's desk and other areas into boxes where they have been have resided ever since. Our review of the boxes at NARA shows that White House institutional practices for the handling of classified materials, including declassification procedures, are inconsistent with how the intelligence community and military handles classified materials. This is indicative of the staff's packing processes and not any criminal intent by President Trump. As such, the matter should have been immediately referred to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence or your committee, and not DOJ. The improper involvement of DOJ in what should have been an administrative investigation of the mishandling or spillage of documents with classification markings set the matter on the wrong course. And in the current political environment, Attorney General Merrick Garland and DOJ predictably chose to pursue this as a criminal investigation. Any doubts Any doubts that the presence of marked documents in the boxes was the result of White House institutional processes rather than intentional decisions by President Trump should have been dispelled by the recent discovery of marked documents at um, at the residences of President Biden and Vice President Pence. The possession of documents by these two former vice presidents is similar in some respects to those that were transferred to Mar-a-Lago. President Trump, like the outgoing vice presidents, was not afforded assistance from NARA and GSA, although as president, he and not the vice presidents were entitled to that assistance. This resulted in confusion about how materials were to be handled as the administration was winding down. To be clear, our legal team has reviewed the entirety of the 15 boxes since their return to NARA and has supervised searches of several different locations, some of which resulted in the discovery of a handful of additional marked documents. We have seen absolutely no indication that President Trump knowingly possessed any of the marked documents or willfully broke any laws. Rather, all indications are that the presence of marked documents at Mar-a-Lago was the result of haphazard record-keeping and packing by White House staff and the GSA. Hello, Cassidy Hutchinson. President Trump has directed us to immediately notify DOJ of the discovery of marked class marked documents at Mar-a-Lago, and we have faithfully done so. Guys, I really think that you can't overlook Cassidy Hutchinson's role in DOJ in, in GSA. Because she's there in the White House on staff working for GSA. She helps pack up the boxes sent to Mar-a-Lago. She tries to get a job with President Trump at Mar-a-Lago post-presidency. Doesn't get it. Then goes to the January 6th committee and tells these wild tales, which get all of this attention. And I think she's a, and she does this terrible acting job. 
where you can tell she doesn't even believe the lies that she's telling. But the Democrats completely believe it because they hate Trump and Orange Man Bad blinds them to any discernment. And I honestly think she might have been Trump's person who he chose to slip in some crossfire hurricane documents into those boxes. Because I, I really think that Trump and team want the crossfire hurricane stuff to come out in court by like through these means, because like they'll chase Trump over the crossfire hurricane binder documents, which they have a copy of. And I think, I think Biden and them reclassified some of that, those documents. They're still marked classified because Trump declassified them right as he's leaving the white house on January 19th. So they still have the markings and John Solomon gets a copy of the binder, goes and makes a bunch of copies of them. Then he has to go back to the white house and hand the binder back. And I think the copies he made get slipped into all this stuff that got quickly packed up. And then DOJ finds copies of them. And they're like, wait a minute, he's retaining classified information. And yeah, I think it's all this game. Like, like it's like the Matador's cape thing. It's like, come, come on, come after this cape. Trump's just holding up his Matador's cape. And it's the, it's the mark classified documents from the crossfire hurricane binder. And they're going to run at that cape. And the result is he's going to remove it. And it's going to disclose all of this stuff he wanted disclosed anyway. That's my working theory. All right. Back to this, this thing. The decision to have DOJ rather than ODNI conduct a review of what happened is probably the executive branch's single biggest blunder in addressing this issue. As Abraham Maslow wrote in 1966, quote, if the only tool you have is a hammer, it is tempting to treat everything as if it were a nail, despite the availability of far more appropriate support, such as from ODNI. The involvement of DOJ improperly predetermined that the matter should be handled as a criminal investigation. DOJ needlessly ratcheted up the adversarial nature of the matter, resulting in a waste of time and resources and a disturbing loss of public trust. This serves no legitimate purpose as DOJ's actions further erode constitutional rights while blindly compromising its own ability to provide a comprehensive account of what happened. From the inception of this matter, rather than working cooperatively to ensure the return of all marked documents and correct any procedural failures, the DOJ team chose a path of aggressive combativeness. In doing so, it compromised the evidence, constitutional rights, and in many instances, the professional ethics of its prosecutors. It has sought to criminalize civil matter, a civil matter, pursue an unprecedented investigation of a former president, which I think Trump wanted anyway, while bristling at transparency and is desperately seeking to justify its abominable conduct. History will not be kind to DOJ or the administration that supports this assault, while excusing much more serious conduct by the current president. The best way to investigate how marked classified documents found their way um, out of a controlled environment is to analyze where they were found with surrounding materials. Had ODNI investigators approached President Trump early on, it would have been able to work cooperatively with the president's staff and conclude 
that any alleged mishandling or spillage was due to failed institutional procedures in the White House, not intentional wrongdoing. DOJ chose not to work cooperatively with President Trump's team and instead chose to fuel animosity, though the inappropriate use of criminal investigative tools such as a grand jury subpoena on May 11th and a search warrant on August 8th. Morning, Wild Boar. See, Wild Boar agrees with me. Secretly, Wild Boar agrees with me about everything, I suspect. He just pretends that he doesn't because he wants to keep up some degree of kayfabe. I have learned this and believe it to be true. And always will. Also, good morning to Mermaid. I see you there. And Geezer Man. Good morning to y'all as well. DOJ's unnecessarily... Oh, no, wait, here we go. By unleashing a grand jury subpoena, DOJ intended to put President Trump on the defensive not to invite his cooperation. Moreover, grand jury subpoenas seek only the disclosure of documents, in this case, any documents with classification markings. They do not provide any mechanism to document where those documents were located or what they were near, thus destroying the contextual evidence that is critical to understanding the handling of the boxes that were ultimately transmitted to NARA. Brain strain again. Thank you for the $5. They say search warrant, knock, knock. Wait, hold on. I'm going to lock some closets. You can't search those. (laughs) Feel free to search anywhere else, but I'm going to lock some closets. Okay. You can't search my locked closets. (laughs) Maggie, good morning. Karma, good morning. Ryan, good morning, chess, not checkers. That's right. You know, when you're really mad at somebody, kind of like when you have TDS, you find yourself playing checkers, don't you? Instead of chess. That's what Trump keeps on getting these people to do. All right. DOJ's unnecessarily aggressive use of a grand jury subpoena was not intended to ensure full compliance. When defense attorneys request additional time, U.S. attorneys' offices routinely agree to a reasonable schedule, often including rolling production, which allows parties to produce what they find when they find it, but continue to search even after compliance date, until the search is complete to ensure full and complete disclosure. Here, President Trump's attorney, Evan Corcoran, attempted to negotiate additional time to conduct a complete search, and Jay Bratt, then the chief of the counterintelligence and export control section of the National Security Division, initially agreed to extend the applicable response time. However, he subsequently reneged on that agreement and rejected the proposed production schedule or any rolling production. Ultimately, President Trump's legal team complied with DOJ's demands, performing as diligent a search as they could by Mr. Bratt's arbitrary deadline, and submitted a certification that affirmed the same and also tried to entrap Christina Bob and she didn't fall for it because she is wicked smart. And then now Evan Corcoran is a cooperating witness because he took notes about everything and is actually trying to, he's a bad guy. He's a very bad man. He's a very, very bad man. And Trump knew that and Trump got him caught. He got caught being a very bad man. Anyway, I'm always going to remember that because this this idiot thought he could trap Christina Bob. <laughs> All right. To be clear, the certification stated that a diligent search was conducted and all responsive documents found were provided, not 
that the search turned up all possible materials, as many media outlets have falsely characterized the certification as saying. On June 3, 2022, several weeks after serving the subpoena, Jay Bratt and three FBI agents met Mr. Corcoran at Mar-a-Lago, at which time Mr. Corcoran turned over the documents he found in boxes located in the storage room after his failed mission to entrap Christina Bob and get her to sign off on the search. President Trump briefly joined the meeting and told Mr. Bratt that if DOJ needed anything else, his team should simply ask, after which Mr. Corcoran showed the DOJ the room in which the documents were stored. Although Mr. Corcoran told the DOJ representatives that they were not going to go through boxes together that day, he fully expected DOJ to ask to return to Mar-a-Lago and examine all the boxes. Mr. Bratt reinforced this belief when, five days later, he wrote to Mr. Corcoran requesting that an additional lock be placed on the door. Guys, did the FBI not search the locked closet because Jay Bratt Put the code, put the lock on the door and didn't tell them the code. Like, how hilarious is it that we've got this story that when they went to search Mar-a-Lago, they couldn't search it. They couldn't search all the rooms. Where'd that go? Where'd that go? Not that, not that. I don't even remember where it was. Where'd my ABC news story go? Ah, yeah, yeah. I got distracted by Joffy and now I don't know where that ABC news story went. Where'd that ABC news story? Hold on, hold on, hold on. I've got it over here. Here we go. How hilarious is it and how completely not, not a coincidence at all, no such thing as coincidences around President Trump, that Jay Bratt advised Trump's attorney, Evan Corcoran, that he should add another lock to a room at Mar-a-Lago. And then when the FBI searches Mar-a-Lago two months later, they're like, oh, we can't search that locked closet. And we also... Let's not search the hidden room inside Trump's residence. Like, <laughs> there's some, there's more to that. The lock was installed and the boxes kept under lock and key in a facility guarded by armed secret service agents. That is not mentioned in any grand jury material or in the indictment, is it? God is with us on Foxhole. That is right. It is funny that so many people in Trump's admin thought that they were sliding in under Trump's radar. It's hilarious how the swamp keeps on thinking they can catch Trump when Trump just keeps catch catching the swamp. At the time, President Trump and Mr. Corcoran understood this to be the beginning, not the end, of working cooperatively cooperatively with Mr. Bratt and DOJ to resolve any outstanding concerns about the boxes. President Trump did not imagine that, rather than accept his offer, Mr. Bratt would abruptly discontinue the dialogue and seek a search warrant, apparently eager to criminalize this document dispute with NARA. As we now know from reporting by the Washington Post, 
Mr. Bratt fought with the FBI to block any further cooperation with Mr. Corcoran. According to one news report, Mr. Bratt met with FBI officials who repeatedly urged that the FBI should seek to negotiate a consensual search rather than conducting a surprise search. According to the Washington Post, quote, tempers ran high in the meeting. Bratt raised his voice at times and stressed to the FBI agents that the time for trusting Trump and his lawyer was over. The same article reported that Mr. Bratt urged the use of search warrant as early as May 2022, which speaks volumes about his desire to use criminal investigative tools in the unprecedented and heavy-handed fashion that followed. Is that the same article that I was showing you guys? I should quit closing things I open. I should just leave this stuff up because I keep on going back. We circle back over and over again on this show. which is an expression I don't think I ever used until Jen Pisaki came along. Where is it? Where did I go? This one. Is it this same article? Nah, it's not the same one. Okay. The Washington Post article is showing a clear effort by FBI officials to distance themselves from the misconduct of Mr. Bratt and his team in this investigation also stated, quote, some FBI field agents then argued to prosecutors that they were inclined to believe Trump and his team had delivered everything the government sought to protect and said the Bureau should close down its criminal investigation. This is consistent with the demeanor of field agents who met with Mr. Corcoran and expressed their gratitude for being permitted to inspect the storage room, which they acknowledged that most attorneys and their clients would not permit under similar circumstances. And when the FBI asked Mr. Bratt, whether President Trump was the subject of a criminal investigation, Mr. Bratt reportedly replied, quote, what does that matter? This was a stunning and disingenuous position for a DOJ attorney to take when advocating for the unprecedented search of a former president's home. In the end, A.G. Garland endorsed Mr. Bratt's conduct by approving DOJ's raid and then on August 11th held a press conference that failed to mention President Trump's offer to cooperate regarding the return of documents. To date, only a heavily redacted version of the search warrant affidavit has been made public. However, it is clear that DOJ utterly failed to make an accurate representation or presentation to the magistrate judge, thereby violating President Trump's constitutional rights against an unreasonable search and seizure. DOJ likely concealed from the judge that President Trump had offered his cooperation or that the DOJ team could have pursued a consensual search, as President Trump had essentially invited them to do. The redactions to paragraphs 56 and 57 of the application are telling, as they may well conceal distortions about DOJ's interactions with Mr. Corcoran, rather than any actual sensitive information. As President Trump's legal team moved to conduct additional searches for documents with classification markings, DOJ's continued its pattern of prioritizing belligerence over thorough investigation, refusing our invitation to have FBI agents observe our search. This refusal like the earlier decision to proceed by search warrant rather than cooperate in a consent search, again resulted in DOJ's inability to establish a clear chain of custody or evidentiary context of the document locations. Got to pause here. That might come up in this case. Like how? How can they 
like at trial, Trump and team are going to want to get at this point that the way they went about the investigation destroyed the chain of custody that would have otherwise been present had the DNI done the investigation. Remember that. That's If this thing goes to trial, which I don't think it will, but if it does, that's definitely going to come up. In an attempt to overcome its failures, DOJ chose to compel Mr. Corcoran and the investigators hired by the legal team to testify before the grand jury concerning their memories of where documents were found. This was clearly a suboptimal and constitutionally dubious substitute for what should have been a well-documented consent search that would have located documents in the condition that had been collected and stored by White House staff. DOJ is the wrong agency to investigate mishandling or spillage of classified documents. DOJ's conduct of this investigation, as well as persistence, often criminal, persistent, often criminal leaks of sealed information to the media is antithetical to the principles of a fair and impartial search for the truth. However, President Trump's case is not the only instance in which DOJ has demonstrated its unsuitability for such investigations. When documents were found in President Joseph Biden's Penn Biden Center office, despite clear indicators that his office were office, excuse me, Despite clear indicators that his violations were more likely the result of willful misconduct, DOJ treated him very differently by foregoing any attempts at manufacturing conflict while implicitly approving the spoilation of evidence. The applicable criminal statute prohibits willful retention of national defense information, not mere possession. To prove willful retention, a prosecutor must first establish that the possession was knowing. Despite media spin to the contrary, this is the key element that distinguishes President Trump's retention of documents from that by President Biden. Evidence of knowing possession can be readily inferred from the length of time that President Biden possessed the marked documents since leaving office and the fact that they were moved and stored at multiple locations. In comparison, the materials found at Mar-a-Lago were still stored in the same GSA boxes in which they left the White House, untouched in the relatively short time since the end of President Trump's term. Perhaps the most damning fact for President Trump is that he possessed marked documents from his time in the or for President Biden is he protect, possessed marked documents from his time in the Senate, a body that maintains all marked documents in a skiff, unlike the White House. Further, as you are no doubt aware, and as mentioned earlier in this letter, Media reports have indicated that classified documents were contained in a folder labeled personal, which is much more powerful evidence of knowing retention than documents being randomly dispersed into boxes by moving teams. Rather than learning its lesson from the mishandling of President Trump's document searches, DOJ repeated the same mistake, allowing President Biden's private attorneys to conduct searches and turn over marked documents without any documentation of where they were found, and what evidence, if any, indicated knowing possession. It was widely reported that, unlike the search of President Trump's home, DOJ declined to attend and observe or participate in the searches. Instead, it chose to allow this key contextual evidence to be destroyed in a case that has far more indications of criminality. Similarly, it appears that Vice President Pence was also permitted 
to return documents without DOJ involvement or documentation of where the documents were found. What is consistent in all three of these cases is that the document handling procedures in the White House are flawed, and DOJ is not the appropriate agency to conduct investigations pertaining to the mishandling of or spillage of classified information. The solution to these issues is not a misguided, politically infected, and severely botched criminal investigation, but rather a legislative solution. DOJ should be ordered to stand down, and the intelligence community should instead conduct an appropriate investigation and provide a full report to this committee, as well as your counterparts in the Senate. Armed with the appropriate knowledge, we respectfully suggest that your committee hold hearings and make legislative changes to, one, correct classified document handling procedures in the White House, two, standardize document handling and storage procedures for presidents and vice presidents when they leave office, and three, formalize procedures for investigations into mishandling or spillage of classified material to prevent future situations where DOJ is inappropriately assigned to conduct such an investigation. President Trump's legal team would be happy to meet with you and your staff and discuss this. Please know that despite the differences in the cases, we do not believe that any of these three matters should be handled by DOJ as a criminal case. So that means not Biden, not Pence, and not Trump. Rather, the stakeholders to these matters should set aside political differences and work together. Signed all these lawyers, and I actually, I'm trying to remember. Do you guys recall if the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence has had any hearings about this or discussed any legislation in this regards in the past year? It might have slipped my mind, but I don't really remember any. Hmm. Okay, about time to wrap up the show. I don't think I... The only thing I didn't get to today... Here, I can do this real quick. I can get this uh, real quick. Um, Because this... um, This goes back to... Well, there's really just one thing about this I want to point out. And those of you who have been watching me since the very beginning, thank you. And you will rec- I think you might recall this and you'll, you'll appreciate it. So, and thank you everybody over on Foxhole for the gold pills. Um, appreciate that very much. Um, so this story, um, oh, Wild Boar, what I was just reading is a document from spring of last year that came from Trump's attorneys. And it's to uh, Mike Turner at the HPSCI. Um, And it's a good read because it, like the reason I read the entire thing just now is because so much of what was in this has come up in Trump's filings in the doc's case. And we've read them um, on this show. And it's like, all this stuff was spelled out back in the spring um, and spelled out very well. And since then, we've seen these same arguments appear over and over again in Trump's filings and in particular in that, that massive discovery filing, motion to compel discovery that we read last week. Um, 
it gave us more information on the circumstances of the search in the early stages of this investigation, which proved that this document was really spot on by the Polatory Law Group. It was very much spot on. Like this, act, this document right here that I just read actually is stronger now than it was back in April. Its arguments are stronger because we've learned more and it's just, it's just spot on. All right. So I wanted to hit on this real quick. Um, so you guys probably saw the news this week about, um, one, you saw, <laughs> one, you saw, um, the news from president Biden that the, that prime minister, uh, she of China promised him that China would not interfere with the U S election, that China is going to play nice, right? <laughs> like, Oh, what a movie. What a movie we're watching. So Biden goes out and brags that he talked to President Xi and President Xi uh, has agreed not to interfere in the U.S. election in 2024. <laughs> and, the, and within 24 hours, there's a hearing um, in Congress with the FBI and uh, NSA Cybercom and CISA. And there's also the news that breaks that on Wednesday of this week, the U.S. Department of Justice sent commands to hundreds of infected small office and home office routers to remove malware that state-sponsored hackers in China were using to wage attacks on critical infrastructure. The routers, mainly Cisco and Netgear devices that had reached their end of life, so this is old equipment, were infected with what's known as KV botnet malware, Justice Department officials said. Chinese hackers from a group tracked as Volt Typhoon, that's the name of the group, we've covered them before, they're the same group that did a cyber attack on Guam last year, used the malware to wrangle the routers into a network they could control. Traffic passing between the hackers and the compromised devices was encrypted using a VPN module KV botnet installed. From there, the campaign operators connected to the networks of U.S. critical infrastructure organizations to establish posts that could be used in future attacks. The arrangement caused traffic to appear as originating from U.S. IP addresses with trustworthy reputations rather than China. Okay? So, the FBI sent commands to hundreds of Wi-Fi devices that forced the removal of Chinese spyware or malware this week. They also put out this bulletin, and you will see that this is a joint bulletin from the FBI and CISA targeting the Volt Typhoon Group, okay? At the same time, they appear for a hearing. FBI Director Ray. CISA Director Easterly and um, Cybercom Commander General Nekosoni, who's today, today is his last day as NSA and Cybercom Commander. So thank you for your service, General Nekosoni. I actually think you're a good guy. Some people don't. I think you're a good guy, as far as I can tell. Um, they testified to a House committee on threats from China. 
And in that hearing, they gave some examples, but I want to point out that this has all the markings of Cybercom doing this. Like U.S. Cyber Command is who would be aware of the attacks. U.S. Cyber Command is who would thwart attacks. U.S. Cyber Command is who would defend our country against cyber attacks. And I honestly think that this claim that the FBI sent commands is erroneous. I think it's a cover. I think that Cybercom did. We're not saying that explicitly because things that happen in the cyber realm can be considered acts of war. And so I think that cybercom it's, I think this is one of those occasions where it's what's left unsaid. So the circumstances of this are that the FBI is coming up and saying, we did this, but then they go and appear at a panel and who's with them general nakasoni of cyber command and i think if you're america's opponents you look at that and you infer that it was cyber command who actually did this now cyber command's going through a transition now they got a new commander coming in today's nakasoni's last day and there's also they're talking about cybercom 2.0 um it's been 10 years since this entity was created and they've adapted now uh, this account, Dakota Sidwell, chimed in on my thread and posted his own thread, which has some good stuff in it. Um, one of the things that he had is this right here, which goes to what I'm saying. The FBI's announcement said FBI Director Ray announced with that the FBI, with partners, conducted a technical operation against the PRC malware known as Volt, Volt Typhoon and took decisive actions to disrupt the activity through a use of unique authorities, tools, and capabilities. That says Cybercom without saying Cybercom. I can't imagine a better way to say Cybercom did it than that right there. And then to have the commander of Cybercom appear next to you as you're testifying in the house just further adds to that point. Now, Ray tells Chris Ray tells a story here, and you guys may recognize this. If you've been watching my show since the very beginning, you may recognize the story that Ray is telling in this clip. Sorry. Oh, wait, I should probably like unmute the audio for you guys so you can actually hear what he's saying that would be that would be good kyle that would i think a pro would probably unmute the audio what he was playing for his audience okay ge aviation a major public very sophisticated company uh entered into a joint venture with it wasn't a chinese company um but the Chinese were able to recruit an insider at the joint venture. The joint venture was then able to get access to sensitive GE information, which then it used, he used, to uh, help Chinese intelligence officers back in China hack GE's systems. 
Um, so you had the joint venture, which enabled the recruitment of the insider, which enabled the cyber hacking, and then for extra credit, the guy was able to essentially cover the tracks because of his insider access. Now, fortunately, there's a happy ending to that story because GE did what we want all businesses to do, had a good relationship with the FBI and our local field office, and we were able to essentially run a sting operation back against the Chinese, prevent millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars of R&D from being fleeced by the Chinese and essentially lure an MSS officer who was involved uh, to Brussels where he was arrested and we extradited him and he's now uh, in federal prison. If you guys have been watching my show since at least episode 16, you're aware of this case because I covered it on my show at the same on the same day that I covered Alex Saab. Alex Saab extradition and the Yanzhou Shu extradition happened very close to one another. We're talking about the very first ever Chinese intelligence officer to be extradited to the United States to stand trial. And he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. I, I covered this case and we read that story that Ray just told about how they tricked this MSS officer into going to a lunch meeting with some operatives and they got, uh, they got criminal evidence on him and they got him arrested and he was stealing all sorts of tech from GE. And I want to make this point and you guys have been watching me since the very beginning. will appreciate this. I think, um, I tracked this case and we tracked this case because yeah, it's interesting all on its own, but it ran counter to the popular narratives that the FBI is bad and Beijing Biden, Biden's controlled by China and nothing is happening. All that reactionary, very cynical uh, commentary that we all come across every single day, all day. And if you go against those takes, then you get a lot of flack and you get a lot of mockery. But we were right because since then, since this right here, since this guy was extradited, this is all happening way back in October of 2021, I believe. I'm pretty sure it's been that long. Let's see. No, that's 2018. Oh, this is wrong. Where is it? Right here. He was convicted in 2022. I think his extradition was in 2021. If I remember right. I'm pretty sure it was 2021. Yes. November 5th, 2021. Since then, there have been dozens, maybe over 50, I'm pretty sure well over 50 indictments of CCP Intel officers, agents, and associates. That's right, Ryan. That's absolutely right. When you take the time to track these developments and ignore all the narrative stuff, all the commentary, all the reactionary takes, the cynicism, the clickbait, when you ignore all that, and you go and do the work to find the details of what's actually happening, you figure out that Biden's strings were cut a long time ago. 
and you figure out that there are so many efforts going on to protect our country, including indicting more and more and more CCP officers, agents, and associates. I mean, heck, it was... At one point, there were 44 indictments of CCP agents on the same day. So, it was, for me, and perhaps from some of y'all who remember this, it was great hearing Ray, that little clip right there of, of Ray um, speaking about this, because it was like, oh yeah, we know that, we know that case. We know that case. And what Ray is talking about is correct. And Irish Jim mentions Dong Jingwei, and I've had a couple people mention Dong Jingwei to me. In fact, one of them was right here. Uh, yeah, theoretical conspiracy theorist. I don't know if you're watching right now, but they ask, when is Dong Jingwei going to come into play? Basically, that's what they ask, right? And I haven't replied, but my reply to that is, I just told you how he did right here. Do you think that over 50 Chinese agents have been, have been indicted in the U S in the past two years because Dong Jingwei isn't having an effect? I think it's because he is. I think these indictments, many, many, many of them are because Dong Jingwei is here. Okay, I really do have to go, but there is a question on Rumble I want to get to. Um, thank you very much for the rant, Fixed Bayonet. They say, they ask, what effect, if any, do you think the Castro indictment could have on his lawsuits across the country to remove Trump from the ballots? Okay, so um, if you're not familiar, uh, Castro is the um, guy who brought the majority of the 14th Amendment challenges against Trump being on the ballot across a whole bunch of different states. And um, he was recently indicted himself for uh, 33 counts of fraud because the guy, it appears that the guy ran a tax fraud scam uh, business where you could go to him and file your tax returns and he would get you way more money from the IRS uh, than you deserved. And then he would split that money with you. Um, and the FBI ran a sting operation on him and got him. So, what effect do I think it'll have on those ballot challenges? One, it doesn't help them at all. It doesn't help them whatsoever, obviously. But I don't think that him being, I think him being indicted is just like karma. I mean, it's just like, and, and yeah, hey, karma patriot. I don't know if I said hi to you earlier. Maybe I did, but good morning to you. And you, uh, Buster Lou, Jatriot, EH Kyle, Mr. Beans, Frankie's Fight, Annie American. Good morning to y'all. Team Smooth. Um, I think his challenges, his ballot challenges are undone by the Supreme Court, no matter what. So I think it's just like cherry on top that he got indicted himself. I think it's karma. I think it's um, poetic justice, if you want to call it that. I don't think that him being indicted for fraud itself undoes his ballot challenges, although it definitely uh, impacts his funds and his ability to engage in that sort of lawfare, I would assume. But he probably has financial backers anyway who were funding those ballot challenges, I think. Uh, but 
as far as those ballot challenges go, they're going to be undone by the Supreme Court. And um, he just looks like a fool anyway, right? Like, it's just, it's just fun. It's just fun. And, and of course, somebody who is himself a swampy creature would go after the guy who is draining the swamp. I mean, it's just so fitting. Sometimes the simulation winks at you and uh, sometimes the simulation writes a joke into the storyline. And that joke is, is uh, that this Castro fool. <laughs> oh, I love the simulation. Okay. Uh, Storm Shelter. Also, and Snarky Dez. Good morning to y'all. Okay, I got to run. Got to go back to dad duty. So y'all have a great day. And uh, remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we will win this war. I will see y'all on Monday for another episode. Take it easy. Yeah.